0: Welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. Thanks so much for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Simon Grove. And if you're not familiar with Simon, Simon is a music producer and session bass player and guitarist based out of Sydney, Australia. And Simon has worked with a ton of great artists in the prog metal genre, including Protest the Hero, Pliny, Intervals, and so many more. And one really cool element about Simon is his bass tones. And obviously, as a session bass player, bass tones are very important to him. And in this interview, he gives us a very extensive breakdown of how he dials in his bass tones and the different signal chains that he uses to get the solid low end and the definition of the top end, all that kind of stuff. He really breaks down his entire process, and I think that it just kind of lifts the curtain on what goes into getting a great bass tone, because so often we don't get to hear people's chains and the processes and how they might split the signal in a whole bunch of different ways. And Simon really kind of lets us get all of that in this interview, and it's very, very cool. So with that said, I'm really looking forward to you digging into this episode and learning more about his bass tones and learning all about the different ways he incorporates editing and tracking techniques to get his mixes sounding super tight, super polished. And I think you're going to learn a ton in this interview. He's very articulate with his answers and it's great to hear. So yeah, without further ado, let's just jump right into the interview. Simon Grove, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. What's going on, man? So much, man. Thanks for having me on. Of course, no problem. For people who might not know you or aren't familiar with the artists that you've worked with or your background and how you got into music and all the cool stuff that you're working on these days, can you give us that background story?
1: Uh, yes. Yeah. So mainly people
0: might know me. Uh, I play
1: bass for a guy called Pliny, who is uh, also from Sydney, Australia, where I am, if you can tell from my accent. Um, I've been a session musician for him since his first gig, which I guess I think was around 2015, if I can remember correctly. So um, basically it's been, I, I mean, I've been playing bass forever since probably I was 13 or so. And uh, ever since then, obviously I would do the usual thing of uh, joining bands and writing music and recording and stuff like that. And I have this uh, this very fond memory of working on a, a Record with my uh, band that I was in high school with at the time, and we're in a studio working on uh, just an EP. And I remember looking at the engineer and just thinking it was literally witchcraft. Like I was, I was looking at what he was doing—probably the most basic stuff now—but I was just, you know, completely blown away. And I thought I could never do that if my whole life depended on it. Um, But anyway, move forwarding to everything else. I kind of started. I guess just getting further and further into it, doing band demos, like my own band demos, and, you know, scratch tracks for writing and stuff like that. And I just started sort of, you know, getting curious about why does my demo not sound like a pro record. And I kept pushing and pushing and buying more gear and, you know, diving down that rabbit hole. And um, ultimately, I kind of ended up. Attempting to start professionally mixing, you know, just like anyone else kind of would, but um, in the sense of just like, you know, local bands, friends bands, stuff like that, doing things for free, doing things for favors and stuff like that and kind of working around that Uh, until now. um, And I guess working with Pliny a lot, uh, that has been a really good uh, stepping stone, I guess, to exposure to bigger bands. Um, He writes a lot of cool music and a lot of people listen to that cool music. And I just happen to work on the production side of that stuff. So I guess people start noticing me because of those records as well. Um, I had a band actually before I was um, working with Pliny and he was somewhat of a fan and we actually had him uh, play a guest solo on our record and stuff like that. So even then, I guess Pliny kind of came across me because of, again, my bass playing and and my production work. So it's a bit of all over the place, you know. Most of my clients are people that know me from, you know, either being a musician or just other records I've worked on up until this point.
0: That's cool. Yeah, I'm I'm sure that, like, being a musician... I mean, most people listening to this are musicians themselves. And, you know, there's there's something to be said for when you're an active musician and you're traveling or or playing gigs a lot. Like you meet a lot of other musicians on the road and that allows you to network. And, you know, if you if you run a studio, it allows you to, to kind of get some more clients sometimes, too. Right. Because you're meeting so many cool people along the way and. Um, you know, gives you more opportunities to, to connect with people, which is, which is very cool. Um, there's a couple of things that I, I'd love to unpack from what you were just saying there. Um, and uh, the first one is just the fact that you're a session musician. You know, I think that that's something that I think a lot of people listening to this, they might not necessarily want to be full-time engineers, but they want to, you know, be professional musicians and, you know, play or, or record themselves at home and, 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 you know, maybe get some session gigs. So how did you get into the session world?
1: Yeah, um, so I did,
0: I mean, as I said before, I have been playing bass for
1: as long as I can basically remember, so everyone's known me uh, as a bass player before anything else, um, and aside from just the usual thing of playing gigs with people and, you know, just regular networking as a musician, um, I did a degree, I guess, around 2010, maybe 2009, Um Uh, which was just basically a a music degree. It was like a Bachelor of Contemporary Music with a majoring in electric bass. And it just kind of covers the usual things you would get at a music school. So uh, like a lot of jazz, a lot of pop music, a lot of like just theoretical stuff, ear training. um, And actually, it was actually the reason that uh, I kind of discovered audio production more um, and at least got into it in a sense that I it kind of ticked over that obsessive section that I think I was missing previously. So uh, I have this thing where any, any fond memories of playing guitar or bass or anything like that, uh, I can definitely remember a ton of times where I was just obsessively practicing because it was genuinely fun. Like I would skip out on parties on weekends when I was in high school because I wanted to stay home and practice, which is probably the weirdest thing for most young (laughs) teenagers at the time, but I was really keen on doing that. And, uh, When I was doing this degree, which I was, I guess, in my early 20s, um, I had to fill out more parts of my degree with uh, elective courses. So, you know, I could do like a songwriting course, I could do a teaching course, I could do other things that would go towards my degree. Um, And I chose like basic audio production classes. And... It's really like the first few classes are like basic navigation of a door, you know, whether it's Pro Tools or Logic or anything like that. They're just showing you how to click around and figure stuff out. But I think I did probably about three or four weeks of this class and it just became that obsessive thing. It was nuts. Like I was just, it yeah, I, I hadn't experienced anything since I got that obsession with, with playing music. So I did all that. Yeah. Um, but I guess uh, that kind of became the the balance of being, you know, focused really heavily on, on playing bass and being, you know, sort of focused on just playing gigs with people and stuff like that. And also, you know, really, really trying to sharpen my skills as a producer and an engineer and stuff. So anytime, I mean, I already had this list of people that were just musicians I'd worked with forever and now they started realizing that I could probably help them with their demos and stuff like that but um yeah the session thing just kind of came about after just hyper focusing on bass for a good you know uh i guess 15 years at that point and it just kind of became so obsessive that you know i was i was doing everything i was doing wedding gigs i was doing you know playing in random bars with any band that i could um, And then it kind of came about that uh, some of the guys that I was working with, like Pliny and and whatnot, were, you know, breaking into the international touring field. So that is a very interesting uh, and very different world from what I was used to. And it kind of came about that I kind of uh, was just committing to these huge international tours, you know, huge in the sense that they were long. Maybe they weren't the biggest gigs. I wasn't playing stadiums just yet, but it was, you know, uh, pretty lengthy uh tours of pretty intense music and as you mentioned it was just it became kind of a networking thing while i was on those tours i just met all these people and you know guys in bands and guys that were in support bands or we were supporting them or something like that and i just ended up years down the track playing with those guys as well on their solo projects or this record they had to do or something like that and it just kind of you know, drastically blew out of proportion in, in a good way, but it got pretty ridiculous for a few years and I really had to figure out how to uh, tame that all off a bit. That's
0: awesome. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that sounds like the way to go, really. Like, you know, if you're just, you're playing so much that you, you're you kind of just waiting for that opportunity, right? Like you're waiting to find the artist that is actually doing something and that you can get on some gigs with. And, you know, it sounds like you were networking enough to to be the right guy at the right time for, for plenty and and uh, you know, other acts that you've played with. So that's awesome, man. I, I, I love that. That's wicked. Um, one other topic that you kind of brought up when you were in the intro there was like the idea of when you were learning, you were so obsessive with learning the engineering side of things. And you were saying that you weren't quite getting the results that you wanted. So you were buying more and more gear to kind of try to get better results, right? I'm curious to know how... how, how did that work for you? Like, did the did the gear actually make a difference, or was there something else that was like the most, um, the 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 biggest factor that helped you grow as an engineer?
1: Yeah, I think the uh, the only lucky thing about that whole scenario was the fact that I don't know, I was an Australian, like I guess technical metal, progressive metal musician living in a very weird part of Australia. I was like two two hours north of Sydney. Um, focusing on all this obscure stuff that most people in that area and most people in my life to that point wouldn't really understand why I was focusing so much on it. And so that leads to a very particular way of life where you don't have a lot of money to spend on gear anyway. So when I did get like maybe a record for a local band, um, I would immediately dump that money into a piece of gear that I've probably been obsessing over for about six months whether it was something really small and basic, like a, a really you know nice interface that could just grab some good DI's, um, or something as simple as that, um, or, or something a bit bigger, maybe like a amp modeling unit. You know, I remember I, I saved up for ages to get a Line Six Pod X3, and uh, that was like my first deep dive into the ability to actually have some really cool bass tones and really cool guitar tones and know because I just I never had access to anything like that and and it was funnily enough a kind of era where there weren't really that many guitar simulation plugins yet as well and nor did I have the computer that could run them so it was kind of like <laughs> whatever I could get my hands on I made it happen but um yeah that was kind of the, the starting points and then it was obviously things like moving on to a decent set of monitors um, and just trying to sort of build up from there and you start kind of almost analysing what you own and what you have and where I think maybe the holes in quality are. I remember realising that one of my guitars I'd played for so long just had a ton of issues, and I couldn't really you know, figure it out until I had recorded it for a couple of years and been like, oh, wait... You know, this thing's got like a, a problem with the frets and the neck's all crazy and the pickup's got this earthing problem and it's just constantly humming when I select it to this, you know, setting on the pickup selector and stuff. So some gear just brings that out. But that was kind of the whole the whole journey with that. Um, yeah, it was, it's was kind of weird.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's funny how sometimes we like we think that our problems will just be solved by a new gear. And then it's really just, like, you no, know, if you strip away all that new gear and just focus on what you have and, like, the issues with what you have, like, you know, you, you you don't need new gear most of the time to fix a lot of the issues, right? Really.
1: it's That's absolutely it. I think probably the biggest thing over the years for me has been the discovery of, uh, like, getting really down the rabbit hole with monitoring and, I guess, room treatment and... uh realizing that I probably should have spent a lot more time focusing on that stuff a long time ago but I'm glad I got there in the end at some point you know I'm still not totally you know stoked with everything I have but at least I understand you know what's going on with it now as opposed to just sitting in a room questioning everything
0: totally and now that you're at that point too you've I mean you've got all that other gear that you've collected along the way too so you know you've got a good, <laughs> now you got the full setup right <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, one thing that you had mentioned was like your, your bass tones and how once you started playing around with the line six, you know, that kind of opened up a world of possibilities for you as far as bass sounds. And um, when it comes to your bass tones, Ben, like you have incredible bass sounds. And, and so I'm curious. Oh, thanks, man. No problem. So I'm curious to know, like in your opinion, what are the elements that make up a great bass tone?
1: Yeah, um, people people tend to, I guess... Overthink things a bit these days with just so many different options and so many pedals that everyone is claiming is the next best thing. And it's re- it's a really basic answer. Um, ultimately, above all else, you should be really ensuring that your low end is nailed. Um, I mean, that is the role of the bass, really. If you no matter how cool and like how much weird sort of character you've got going on in the mid range and the top end and all this sort of detail or whatever's going on if the low end isn't there and it isn't like a consistent, nice pinned down controlled thing, it's kind of doesn't really have the energy that the, the bass should do, you know, especially in a mix or in a gig, you know? Um, so I, I definitely have spent at least probably the last four, four years, maybe five years, um, really dialing into this specific way. I, I kind of, process my low end um it's definitely a parallel thing which you see quite which is quite a popular thing you know in in bass tones especially in productions but once that's kind of nailed all i'm really doing is just compressing the low end in a certain way um in a way that it responds without being you know insanely dynamic because i i guess you don't really want at least in my mixes i don't want the sub Frequencies and the low, the real lows, like just flying all over the place, dynamic-wise. I want them really, really held down, so that I guess any of the low end punch down there is pretty much drums, any you know, kick drums, toms, stuff like that. And then the top end in the mid range is kind of a free for all almost, depending on what else you've got to work with in the mix. Um, sometimes if it's a bit more of a straight ahead, you know, you've just got two rhythm guitars left and right, and a vocal or something, or a lead guitar or something. Um, you can kind of get pretty outlandish with whatever's going on in the mid-range and the top end of a bass. Um, so, yeah, I guess like from then on, I, I just find that it really comes down to the importance of uh, you know in the mid-range and stuff. I mean, it, the importance of like a cabinet or a, you know impulse response. If you're leaning that way, yeah, that usually ends up being the the glue, I guess, in the mid-range because you do want the bass to to glue into the guitars or the synths or whatever else is sort of supporting that mid-range. And if you do, then you just need to make sure you're kind of finding a nice mid-range in the bass that isn't uh, just fighting everything else. It kind of has to just sit right in its own little spot, but at the same time, you know, be a part of the mix and not just be this super isolated, awkward thing sitting in the,
0: in the way, you know? Absolutely. So when you, you mentioned that you use parallel processing on the bass, You know, are you doing that in post? Like, are you just recording a single DI track generally on the way in and then splitting it out afterwards? Yeah, it's always a single DI. Okay, so you're not doing any splitting ahead of time?
1: No, I mean, so, for example, if I'm playing live, then uh, I'm currently using a neural DSP quad cortex, and I have uh, the the same, obviously, the same signal coming out of my bass just being split off into a few different separate lines within that unit, and then that all just goes gets some down to a single XLR and goes to the front of house. Um, In the studio, I'm just grabbing a clean DI straight away um, and, you know, playing around with that later in the mix, Um, mainly just because I know that uh, in previous times before I was really doing this stuff, uh, like as in this, this approach to processing, I would just spend way too much time trying to dial in a really good sound while i'm i'm tracking which is kind of ridiculous because i still haven't even put the mix together yet or i might not even be mixing the record i might be playing on someone else's record that is getting mixed by someone else and that's never that's never fun so i just think um yeah grabbing grabbing a straight di and then dropping it into a mix and
0: kind of figuring it out from there is is definitely the way i've been working Gotcha. And then you had mentioned that you were compressing the low end. So are you doing any sort of filtering? I know some people will just like filter off all the top end and focus on compressing only like hundred Hertz and below or something like that. Like, is that your approach with that or? Yeah, totally.
1: Totally. Um, I am, I'm definitely doing some aggressive filtering and some aggressive, uh, limiting and compression on that, that low end stuff. Um, mainly, like I said, I don't really want things to be, you know, overwhelmingly dynamic in that, in that range. Um, and I also just like to, I guess, uh, really have control about what gets distorted or what gets, um, what kind of becomes like the the upper and mid range character that I keep talking about. Depending on that, um, really, you know, I always have pretty much like a ballpark of what low end is going to get treated specifically, and then from then on, I can just kind of go nuts with the rest of it. You know, I can put through fuzz pedals and and kind of crazy stuff there. But um, yeah, I'm definitely just filtering off, compressing really hard. In the low end particularly, uh, I find that annoying dynamic stuff that you get from bass, you know, so a lot of like string click, especially if you're a... So for my playing an example, it's it's very aggressive finger style stuff. And I played in the way that I sort of want it to sound similar to a pick without having to play with a pick. So... I almost bash the string into the fret, like the 24th fret, as I pick it. And it gets like this very metallic attack to every note. But it's still got a little bit more like fatness that you would get from a fingerstyle sound. So it's it's kind of just something I've weirdly been working on for a very very long time, just because I kind of like the sound of it. But um, that to me is not exactly ideal when I'm trying to do this subfrequency low end compression um mainly because you've got all this string attack and all this high end stuff going on so i can kind of limit those peaks off and then this is all once it's already filtered or i can you know limit and then filter it doesn't really matter yeah limit off those like hard limit those those peaks off filter down the low end that i need and then compress that low end how i need it compressed and then possibly even limit it again it really gets crushed um As long as it's not distorting, that's kind of the goal. I just need to make sure I'm not, you know, compressing the life out of it, that it just becomes no longer low end and just compression distortion.
0: Amazing. So yeah, so just to kind of like, just so I can kind of sum it up together. It sounds like, yeah, you're kind of splitting the, the signal, filtering off the low end, you know, maybe 100 hertz or below. And then th- th- that low end stays fairly clean, but like heavily compressed or limited. Super clean, super okay. clean. Yeah,
1: the only, the only kind of saturation or anything that would be going on there is anything that I'm getting from the compression. Um, and it's really, I'm trying to make that... Uh, if there's any distortion, it's kind of unintentional. I'm really trying to keep that as clean as possible. So even if I'm using something that might be a an analog modeled unit of something, it's uh, I'm trying to keep that as digital sounding as possible, really. Just super, super surgically clean.
0: Gotcha. And then the top end, you know, everything 100 hertz and up, basically. And then that's where you might add your saturation, distortion, and, and some limiting to take care of some of the clickiness of the finger taps and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, you can go kind of nuts with that stuff. I think that's kind of like the fun part of of it really because, I mean, while the low end sounds really powerful uh, once it's all processed and dialed in, it's definitely not very fun to play through that chain of processing because it just doesn't respond like you would want it to. It's just, you know, kind of flat and dead, but it has its role in the in the mix, especially when, you know, you're not really relying on a bass guitar to add dynamics to a punchy metal record you're kind of wanting the drums to do all that slam and push and pump so um yeah the top end i can sometimes reamp through pedals i can reamp through guitar amps if i want some really crazy sort of distortion i can send it through a, a weird chain of plugins and stuff like that it really it's really kind of just fair game that's awesome depending depending how uh you know how open the, the clients are
0: to an obnoxious bass sound or if they want something a bit more <laughs> tame and I can do that too. For sure. That's very cool. And and I love the fact that you brought up the idea of controlling the dynamics because I think that this is something that a lot of people, there's a lot of emphasis on like maintaining dynamics in a mix. But when you do that, things can easily get lost. And when it comes to the low end with bass, like you want it to feel solid. And so it really does need that control and and that minimal dynamic range just to keep it always in your face, right? Like is that, I'm assuming that's your approach, right? It's definitely like a,
1: a genre specific thing too, as well. Like I, I I think just some of those really big commercial metal mixes um, are always have such a pinned low end in them. It's like such a smooth fat, like. It sounds great, but there's absolutely no dynamic coming from the bass guitar there, or, or any of the low end in the guitars. It's you'll you'll get a bit maybe in the rhythm guitars in like some palm muting stuff, but most of it you just want it to really be exaggerated from the drums. You know, that's that's kind of the the excitement of of a metal drum production is just how obnoxiously big they sound. So, but yeah, you can kind of get a bit more, uh, you know. Free with the dynamics in the upper end of things if you're processing that sort of stuff in parallel like we have been talking about. Um, you know, you can let the mid-range and the, the higher frequencies have a little bit more going on dynamically. So maybe if you got like a, a slapping thing or a, just something that's a bit bright and dynamic, you can kind of... I think that's fine to leave that in there. But even then, you'd be surprised with how much you can get away with by just pinning it down again and... and you know, somewhat sucking the life out of the dynamics, but in a uh, in a musical way, if that's a thing.
0: Of course. <laughs> well, the other thing to to maybe ask about is, like, the relationship between the bass and the kick drum, because that's obviously a really important thing when it comes to the low end. So how do you set your tones up so that you're making room for that kick drum to come through? Are you concerned with that at all in the tracking stage? Or Yeah. I'm glad you asked if I was concerned about it, because this is one thing
1: that I feel like I've never really worried about too much and it's never been a huge battle of mine Um, and I'm not saying that uh, I'm not aware of it, it's more that I think that when I'm dialing in my kick sounds and my bass sounds, I've pretty much done, I haven't done the same thing, like I haven't done the same processing for just ever but I think just the way I naturally like to hear my kick drums and my bass guitars they just naturally want to work together, which is probably convenient for me just to like that but I don't need to do any, you know, like side chaining or uh, any kind of real trickery. I find that my bass guitar, especially in the last probably couple of years, um, sits under the kick. Um, it can almost have like, a, almost like an EDM style sub to it. Um, and then the kick drum it still has a lot of like, you know, weight to it, but it's slightly above the bass. And... Uh, Again, like I said, I think I think both of them can completely live, you know, in in beautiful harmony if they like. But as long as uh, you kind of have that guitar, the bass guitar controlled, um, so the kick can because the kick has got to have dynamics. The kick has to punch. It has to have like transient. It has to have things going on dynamically. So as long as. Um, I guess, like, I think when things get messy down in that sort of range, it's because the bass is just flying all over the place and stepping on the, the kick drum's toes, so to speak.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I love that you brought up the idea of having the kick below or above the bass. And, you know, I think that that's something a lot of people don't think about either. They just think, you know, low end is low end. So it's all the same. But but you really do have to be a little bit strategic about, you know, what is actually providing that feel versus like the... the uh, like the tone of the low end, you know, and, and, and finding that relationship. So, um, definitely cool to hear that you're more on the side of having your bass below the kick. Cause I think a lot of times people think it's the opposite, you know, they, they want that kick drum to have that, that subby feel, but, but I think that, yeah, that's obviously why I think your bass tones feel so fat and why they, why they're as big as they are, because it is below the kick drums.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I think, um, I mean, you know, this is this is all stemmed from being asked this before just from, you know, random people and other engineers and stuff I'd hang out with. And it seems to be a common question uh, and and something that people sort of battle a lot with in their own productions is the, the kick versus the bass guitar thing. Um, so I feel like only just because I've been asked that a whole lot that I had to kind of assess what I'm doing. Because like I mentioned, I don't really think about it too much. But if I had to pull it apart I would say that's that's kind of what I'm doing you know bass sits below the kick but I guess I guess a good takeaway from that is that I've just naturally been doing it for until I got asked that question so if someone's out there doing that already and it just feels right then it's it's probably not a bad thing
0: Yeah absolutely so then are you ever doing any sort of filtering with your kick drums to make them a little bit thinner so that there's more room for that low end of the bass Um yeah there's a tiny tiny
1: bit of filtering going on, but it's just really i mean a down down in like i guess you know if we're talking anywhere between thirty to sixty hertz uh there's still you know that's still existing in my kick drum, but I just don't want that to resonate for really like a long time either, you know most metal. Kick drums and you know when I say metal, I'm being very general because if you listen to you know I guess any of the stuff I do with plenty, it's not exactly the heaviest of heavy metal, but um, it's got its moments and it kind of needs to have that, you know, flick the metal switch on for a bridge or something here and there. So
0: yeah, it's definitely a lot more groove based.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I guess like yeah, so I guess like what I'm saying is with the low end down there, and and this is definitely another part that's worth mentioning with the uh, creating sort of a, a good relationship between the kick and the bass guitar is just watching the kick drums resonance. Like, you know, is it ringing for just, you know, a second in your mix with just this, you know, ob- obnoxious amount of low end just wafting out throughout the rest of the mix or, or is it, cause it's not a, it's not a Tom, you know, you don't want this kind of nice tail to it. You kind of, at least in in the stuff that I'm doing, I kind of want it relatively short. I want it to just kind of punch in the mix, do its thing, and then then leave. <laughs> you know, yeah. So um, I'm I think that uh, while I'm concerned about what's going on filter wise with the the EQ and stuff like that in that low end, um, it's almost more important to make sure that you know the drum is you know processed or, or maybe a bit of both. You know, when you're recording it, how it's dampened with its pillow and stuff like that. Uh, to ensure that you're getting a relatively short note not too short that it's completely dead and not too long that it just sounds like you're playing in a cave or something like that you know
0: yeah absolutely no that 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 makes a lot of sense and I think that that is really important especially in heavier styles of music where maybe the tempos are faster and maybe there's some double kicks and that kind of stuff because that low end resonance can really add up very quickly and make your mix sound muddy so you, you do really have to be always thinking about the kick drum as far as like how it fits timing wise within the song and you know, how much space it's actually filling up and occupying. Right.
1: Totally. I'm actually, um, just working on a track for a a client that I've been working on this year. Um, I've done like a couple of their tracks so far. It's a bass player called Evan Marion and he's a good buddy of mine and he's a phenomenal bass player. He played for Alan Holdsworth and, uh, Tigran Hamassian and stuff like that. And, uh, I've just um, finished the mix for the third single we've been working on. And just particularly in this track, um, the kick drum is... I mean, so it's Dana Hawkins on drums who is just a phenomenal phenomenal freak of nature on drums. And and, uh, he's kind of just got some crazy stuff going on in the kick in this song. And because the other two tracks that I've already mixed were done in the same session, they're just doing these like staggered out singles across the course of a couple of months. I loaded up this session and kind of applied all my previous drum processing that I've done on the other singles. And I was like, this the sub frequencies in this kick drum is just out of control. And I went into the kick drum and it's I realized he's just playing a lot faster. And it's nothing to do with, you know, no mic has moved, he's not playing differently, he's not using a different drum or anything like that. There's nothing wrong with the the settings I've got set up on the kick drum bus or anything. It's just he's playing faster. So I would notice just, you know, most of the song he's doing like a faster kick pattern and the sub frequencies are just completely overwhelming. So I would go through, I would keep everything as is because I still liked what I did for the other tracks. And for the moments where he's not, you know, completely flying on the kick drum, I I like it to still sound quite full, but any of the faster stuff I'm automating that that sub frequencies down just because it just becomes so overwhelming that you just can't hear anything else but this just going on. So um that's definitely been a been an interesting thing that I've sort of noticed in that too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That that's awesome, man. I I love like everything you've shared here about your base chain. I think it's like such a detailed description of it, but it all makes a lot of sense. And it, you know, obviously you said you were just doing this kind of habitually before, and then once you started actually thinking about it, you you were able to like kind of articulate why you do things do things the way you do. But it it all makes sense, and and I think people do need to break down their processes a little bit more to understand like why they're actually doing this kind of stuff and and how it all contributes to the overall big picture of a mix. Um, I'm curious to know with the top end of your bass, like that, that's something that really does stand out to me as well with your bass tones is it, you have this like really cool kind of aggressive tone. And and I think some of it comes from what you were talking about earlier, where you're kind of just tapping on the strings a certain way and it's kind of bouncing off the fret a little bit. It's got that, it's got that kind of metallic-y kind of tone. Um, But when it comes to the top end, are you trying to are you kind of thinking about the top end almost as if it's an extension of like the distortion of the electric guitars, or do you kind of treat that as if like the bass is just its own thing, and you know you're not necessarily trying to make it feel like it is one with the guitars or that kind of thing?
1: yeah, I get what you're saying. Um I guess within the ranges of, say, I don't know two fifty three hundred hertz to one k, it's kind of a very bass guitar-y sound in the sense that even if I am distorting it, it still doesn't sound like a guitar um, or the, pr- the approach that I take to that that uh, frequency band is not really something that, uh, you know, you would do with a guitar. So the upper end though, I, you know, from, from 1K up, which is funny because most people would consider that there's not really a whole lot going on with their bass guitars in that range. Um <laughs> I I can happily, you know, send that to a guitar amp uh, or or a guitar amp plug-in um, and get some like obnoxiously high gain stuff going on in that frequency range. And it kind of just, I mean, I'm a big fan of Meshuggah and I know that they've kind of had that sort of sound for decades. Um, and it's definitely influenced a lot of the bands in the scene that I'm working in as well. So there is a definite benefit to... Uh, I guess, you know, just trying a bunch of things. But I guess if, if I had to kind of, you know, put labels on things, then, yeah, that mid-range sort of, you know, let's just say 300 to 1K usually can be anything from a, a clean Ampeg or like a Gallien and Kruger sort of thing um, all the way up until, you know, we go through the the rat pedal or the, the dark glass or something like that. And then we can go up to... All kinds of weird saturation if you're not really looking for something super modern. Um, sometimes just like uh, putting it through satin, you know, fab filter satin and, and choosing some weird, some of the weird saturation settings and clipping that. And, and as long as it's kind of going through a uh, speaker simulation like a cab IR, then it's going to not, it won't exactly sound bad, um, It is very interesting, though, to be sending a bass guitar uh, signal that has been completely clipped off at 300 hertz, though, because that makes all distortions act a completely different way that does not sound very bass guitar-ish. So it's kind of cool, because with all the other parallel stuff going on, you've got all that crazy sub-range frequency stuff going on. You've got, you know, whatever you want to do with the mid-range stuff. Um, You have this... This weird balance of it still feels like a bass guitar because it's just got this obnoxious low end, but at the same time, the mid range is kind of doing its own thing. Um, and yeah, I guess once once it gets up to the really high top end, it's funny. I do another parallel thing, which is similar to that. Uh, so I have the guitar amp sort of distortion sound at the top end, and then I almost just bring back an extremely clean sound on that like fret click. And it's such a, a ridiculously small small amount in my mixes where I just bring the fader up a touch to get like a tiny little bit of that really hi fi top end click coming through, because the guitar amp stuff just completely nudes that that sort of uh, detail.
0: I guess. So you're kind of doing like a uh, splitting your bass into almost like three three layers, like the low, mid, and high.
1: Man, sometimes it can be five. It gets ridiculous. It really <laughs> does. But um. Uh, That's the other thing that the the lower half, you know, the lower part, sorry, of the uh, the bass tone stays still in my door, and it like doesn't move. It barely gets automated. It kind of just sits there, um, doing its thing, and I can kind of chop and change through the rest of the other processes, you know, depending on the section of the the music. So the low end throughout the whole track is just pinned, and it sounds great to me, and I'm happy with it. But say it's like a really chill bridge. I don't think I'm going to have the Destroyer Race Improve sugar guitar tone just blasting over the top of that. So I'm going to try and dial it back. And maybe just for that section, there'll be, you know, the DI going through a, a cleaner bass amp or something really a lot more simple.
0: Very cool, man. I love hearing that. Like, it's it's one of those things that you don't hear a lot of people talking about, like, the post-processing and so it's it's very cool to hear how you break things down and how you're not afraid to split things up and and really just treat each frequency range as its own kind of entity and and uh you know i think that that's definitely it obviously is a big part of of your sound and how you get that really cool full balanced sound that does have that clickiness but it it all blends in really well in the mix so um thanks for sharing that that signal chain that's definitely very cool yeah of course of course now, speaking of your bass tones, one one thing that I know you have done fairly recently is you've made a plug-in version of your bass tones with Submission Audio called the the Grove Bass. And so, I was wondering if you could tell the audience a little bit about that because you know it, it's definitely a, a really cool sounding tool to use. And I'm sure you know because your bass sounds sounds so great, this is definitely helpful for people to to <laughs> implement it into their to- into their mixes.
1: Yeah, well, thanks, man. It's it's been very strange and also equally very humbling and and fun and cool to see this sort of thing get out into the real world because for the longest time it was just a concept uh that was kind of like we'll get it done we'll do it some point and because the guy uh my buddy Ehrman who runs uh who masters a lot of the records that I work on uh runs submission audio and he was kind of like the first guy to reach out and kind of just suggest hey um I think I'm going to be sort of... It was it was a very sort of gradual thing. He obviously was focusing more on the software side of things and wanting to develop this stuff over time. And yeah, he got to a point where he was like, hey, I think I'm going to do like more bass libraries. And I think we should do one at some point where not only is it your guitar, but it's also you're sampling it with your hands and your technique. So it literally just sounds like Simon Grove in a box. And I guess like at first I was... I. I was kind of confused just because I was like, I don't know if uh, I don't. I can't even imagine how that would be, you know, done. Like I, I, the sampling process and stuff like that was just so far beyond my comprehension. I know how uh, drum sampling and stuff works, but I guess like just when it comes down to bass guitar, it and, and strings resonating over other strings and and sympathetic frequencies and stuff like that, it starts getting. I don't know, just just really overwhelming. So I was like, oh, sure, if you guys think that you can definitely do it. So at the time, it was just him and another one of his business partners who was the, uh, I guess, the guy that was kind of doing all the back-end coding stuff and trying to kind of make all these, what were essentially just giant samples of me playing every single, every single fret of my guitar. Um, he was trying to make it sound like a human being. So there was a point within the first, I think, the first couple of days of sampling where we'd sent it off and uh, just to kind of get like a quality insurance check on on the samples that we had grabbed and that everything was working fine. And we got back a clip of uh, just like a, a pretty regular, like, you know, open E string 16ths for like a bar or two. Nothing, nothing special. But the fact that like when we hit play, I literally got goosebumps because... I knew I'd never played that piece of music, but it sounded exactly like me. And it was probably one of the strangest things I've ever heard in my life. It was like, it was my hands. It was all that weird picking thing that I'd worked on for, you know, so many years. It was my bass that I'd just spent relentless amount of hours on. And it was just, but I never played that bass part. I never did. And it was just, it was like hearing a ghost of myself just playing back to me. It was it was very weird. But anyway... um, we kind of uh, started wrapping that up and then the world kind of decided to fall apart and that got pretty interesting for things. Just basic, you know, productivity, trying to, to make things happen, you know. I was trying, even basic things like uh, I was trying to shoot the trailer to launch the video and my my current place was uh, in like a lockdown where I couldn't actually get any camera crew into my my studio to film, to help me film anything. So it was just... Took a little longer than usual, I guess, is what I'm saying. But um, once that finally got out, dude, it was is such a such a crazy thing to see people just like grab copies and go nuts with it. And all these, you know, I think my my the scene that I'm working in, there's so many phenomenal guitarists and guys that can genuinely write ridiculous music just off a laptop in their in their bedrooms. And seeing them embrace that product and and use it f- for those exact reasons was by far one of the most like gratifying things of the whole the whole situation. So um ultimately it was it was a pretty pretty lengthy task, but um yeah, I I I'm so so stoked with how it all turned out. It's you know, got a bunch of built-in pre-processed tones and stuff that I got to mix myself, which was also kind of a concern of mine cuz I was like I I hope that we could it was going to be cool that I could obviously put myself in this instrument and and sell it like that and but it would be really good if I could also dial in some tones that I guess people know me for, or, or try and just at least make some cool sounding stuff. So, so that when people just open up this this plugin, it just does the thing. You know, it sounds cool straight away. And uh, I think we nailed that. Really, I was I was super stoked when we had um we had a launch date set and we had a few artists lined up to do some tracks and some videos and stuff to help with you know sort of push the launch date and you know one of them was plenty and a couple other friends of mine that were similar sort of dudes just doing you know incredible guitarists doing cool music at their place and um i was working on the mixes for them cuz i said i would mix anything if they were able to help me out and it was it was hilarious just having this you know a better version of myself to mix. Like there was just this performance. (laughs) There was no like, you know, I better go retrack that part again because I kind of, you know, picked that a bit weakly in this section or something like that. I was just, was this robo version of me that was just perfect and it sounded ridiculous and it mixed in a matter of seconds. And then Ehrman was mastering it and he said, these are some of the best mixes you've ever done. Do you think it's because the low end is just, you know... Perfect. And I was like, I think so. Maybe I think that's probably it. <laughs>
0: that's hilarious. I'm sure you hear things now all the time that you're like, did I play on that? Like, that sounds like, me. yeah, <laughs> there's so many times where someone like either, you know, just
1: I'll be scrolling through my Instagram feed and it will sound like me on bass. And I'm like, oh, OK, I,
0: I, I, <laughs> it's, it's such a strange feeling. That's awesome. Well, definitely people who are listening to this, like, check it out. It's it's a really cool sounding plugin. And, uh, you know, I, I you know, I think people will definitely be able to make great use of it. Uh, in their in their mixes, so that's very cool. Oh, I appreciate
1: that, man. Thanks. Yeah.
0: I'd love to kind of shift gears a little bit beyond bass. Obviously, like bass is such a big part of of who you are and what you do. But when it comes to your productions and your mixes in general, I mean, you're, they're not, it's not just about the bass. You know, you're, you're you're great with all the other details as well. And um, one thing that I was curious to know is that you tend to work on a lot of music that's very intricate, and there's a lot of like intricate drumming. and And one of the things that really stood out to me is your ability to make ghost notes sound really clear. And I think that's a really hard thing. Um, uh, you know, because people tend to focus so much on like the loudest hits and you know, adding samples to those and making things sound like can- uh, cannons on on the big hits, but like getting getting the those intricate details of a drum kit to cut through is pretty challenging for a lot of people. So, do you have any tips for getting your ghost notes to stand out?
1: Yeah, um it's it's interesting because I'm always finding myself uh kind of battling between those things there was a point in in modern productions where i was finding that a lot of people were making ghost notes too loud it was like this unrealistic level of compression to the point where and i don't know if it was actually compression or or some kind it could have been automation who knows but either way there was just this point where rim shots and, and ghost notes were completely almost the same volume and it just really clutters up that center channel when you've got vocals and bass and stuff going on I guess what I try and do is if luckily if I'm engineering the session it's a lot easier Um, if I'm working on like a Pliny record for example I work with our drummer Chris a lot and uh, I can kind of tell him when I know it's going to be a really dense section of music that he might need to play his ghost notes a little harder then he naturally would feel comfortable doing. Um, but otherwise, most of the time, if it's it's something that I haven't had a chance to uh, sit in on and during the tracking stage, then I just uh, I try and find a way of uh, basically just controlling the the bleed of the any of the cymbals around the snare. Uh, that's probably the biggest thing because as soon as you control those cymbals, you can turn that snare mic up as much as you want, really. So. Um, A cool thing that I've been doing recently, well, maybe not recently, maybe in the last couple of years, more than I think about it, um, is using a drum leveller on the snare track, but it's actually not bringing up the louder hits to a certain point. It's actually bringing them all down. So what I basically do is if I've, I've set up my entire processing chain and it's all sounding great, but there's a few... Maybe let's say in a four minute track, there is 10 rim shots that are just a little bit more rim than drum, and it has like quite a you know sharper attack to it. It really peaks quite hard, and no matter what sort of saturation and stuff you're hitting it with, it's still just so sharp. And maybe it's got like a little bit of extra hi hat coming through on that hit or something like that. It's just got this kind of metallic y top end to it. Um, I find that running a drum leveler plug in, uh, I Can't remember what the name of the plugin is that I use, but um, it's by Sound Radix. It might be actually called Drum Leveler. Either way, um, it kind of just looks out for these higher peaks and pulls it down. So, if anything, it's pulling the harder hits closer to the softer. So, I guess like that might be lending itself a bit to the overall balance of of ghost notes versus, you know, the harder rim shots and stuff like that. But overall, there's also just a lot of uh, automation going on in my mixes for that sort of stuff. You know, from going to something that's like a completely, you know, meathead drum part, as my drummer would put it, where it's just like, you know, velocity 127, if you're a human being just trying to play as hard as possible. And then you drop down to a bridge, which is, you know, tapping the drums and really, really soft. Then I'm definitely going to employ uh, a lot of different forms of automation to. I guess just ultimately the goal is to make it sound natural, sound like a drum that's hitting hard that's also going down to playing soft. Because having like one set of of processing on a drum kit with that sort of material just doesn't really work. It never does. I used to hope it would and I used to try and make it work in mixes all the time and it just never would. So (laughs) I always find myself having to automate in one way or another.
0: Yeah. Do you do you ever do anything like splitting off the ghost notes onto their own separate track? Or, or is it all kind of just the same snare track?
1: It's almost always the same snare track, but I'm definitely not... Uh, actually, that's funny you said that. I did a track maybe two days ago where I did split off the uh, the ghost notes and stuff. It was just in a bridge, and it's almost like this very... The the way I'm leaning towards it for the mix is like it's a very commercial metal sort of sound. But the bridge had this section where the drum was kind of doing this almost like really laid back jazz sort of thing. A lot of like just drags and stuff on the snare drum and stuff that, that is very necessary that you just hear what he's doing. You don't try and gate anything out. You don't try and do too much to it. And that sitting on the original snare track was just sounding like chaos. You know, the, the gate was doing all weird things. I had a transient designer on it that was doing weird things to only, you know, two hits out of the five hits that was going on. It was just. So I, I took them off, put them to a new track, gave them their own processing, and it sounded a lot more like what I think the drummer was intending to sound like anyway. He hasn't given me revisions yet, so we'll soon find out if he hates it <laughs> all. But I think it sounded better than the
0: original anyway. That's very cool. I love that, man. Do you, as far as the main snare track goes, then um, that was another thing that like I just find your your snares really have a lot of bite, but they still have body to them and they sound full. And I'm a drummer, so I nerd out about drum stuff all the time. So snare to me is like so snare to me is like the hardest thing to mix because I'm super picky about it. But like I was just really impressed by your drum your snare tones and just how you have this ability to get them to cut through and sit sit on top of the mix, but in a in a, a really glued way with everything else, if that makes sense. Um so what what's your secret for getting snare to like cut through the mix and have its own space?
1: Yeah, I think I think that's probably the most common thing we're all fighting is just to try and get a good snare sound. Um so you're def- you're definitely not alone there. But I think the the big thing that uh I'm kind of hunting for in most places is again from an engineering point, rejecting as much bleed as possible from anything, whether it's surrounding toms or cymbals or anything like that. Um you know, the closer I can get that to being isolated and borderline sample-like, um, the better. And, and funnily enough, like most people, you know, will think that you don't want it really sounding like a sample, but it, again, depends on the context of the music. And I guess the term sample has kind of been a bit of a funny label over the years because of just how that started out and how some engineers may have abused that power beyond a point where it just sounded ridiculous but uh samples are cool and samples sound, you know, rad when they're done properly so yeah if i can get my snare mic sounding like a sample but obviously with the playing of a drummer it's kind of the the perfect goal um once i've kind of uh nailed that i aim for really focusing on the transient uh so transient designers work really well. Um, just trying to, I guess, shape things before they hit any kind of uh, processing. You know, you can probably do some EQing and stuff if you're trying to just uh, get rid of any sort of trashy noise or any sort of boxy mid-range and stuff like that. But ultimately, we're looking to try and shape that, that especially if we're talking rim shots and stuff, that absolute cracky sort of transient that you get from it so um tuning obviously again another boring thing that people don't want to really look into but you i i can't you know express how important that stuff is and i think it's important for not only you know engineers to know but i think it's really good that drummers get their their head around tuning like pretty aggressively
0: i still have so much to learn yeah it's so funny how many drummers don't know how to tune a kit
1: yeah they can they can keep it you know, in the ballpark once they bash around for an hour or so, but it's like actually getting it to a certain thing where, like, it's it's funny, like, there's some, some guys that I've worked with where we've kind of, you know, directed. I'm like, oh, maybe that's neck and come up. That's all I really need to say. And they do it and it instantly just changes the drum. And they're like, I've never heard that drum sound like that and I've owned it for 10 years or something. And it's just, they've never really, because, you know, drummers don't think of that they don't think about the same way as i don't expect anyone to tell me to try different tuning on my bass guitar it's like until someone says something like that you just kind of get put in the scenario and you're like okay um so it's it's funny once that's kind of tuned once the the bleed has been controlled as best as possible obviously uh stuff the basic stuff like uh a good drum usually a metal drum for me is something that i i like but i have had really good success with maple and i just did a, a record with chris uh our drummer from plenty and um he has a uh he's gonna kill me for not remembering what it is but i know it's a, a snare that uh jojo mayer worked on with Sonor, and it's 27 plies and i think it's a 13 inch and it sounds like a shotgun and it's it's pretty obnoxious, but we just did a record with that. Um, I mean, at that point with 27 plies, if I believe it is 27, uh, it's almost not a wooden drum anymore. It just—it it may as well be concrete or whatever.
0: It's just all attack. <laughs> yeah, but
1: um, I mean, I've actually recorded a granite snare with him as well. Um, all kinds of weird materials can definitely, you can still pull some really cool sounds out of them. But I guess if I had a preference, a metal drum is my thing
0: for sure yeah there's something about metal drums i find that you get you tend to get a lot more of that initial attack whereas the wood can definitely soften up that sound unless like you said you've got like if you have like a 20 ply or or bigger snare drum then you got a fat wood shell that's going to just give you pure attack so um, yeah yeah i'm I'm totally with you on that i i I only i have one wood snare drum that is 20 ply and it's like the only wood snare drum that works for me
1: (laughs) yeah i mean another another favorite snare of mine is uh, a buddy of mine troy wright he has a four ply uh maple uh pearl something that he got a few years ago and every time he's either sent me stems of that or we've he's you know taken it somewhere and we've done some gigs he's uh it just sounds ridiculous so i don't know i used to think that like It starts kind of just becoming a point where you don't really know exactly what materials are doing what anymore because there's so many variables to things, especially with drummers themselves. Uh, Every guy hits differently. Every guy's got a different preference with sticks and, and, you know, heads and how they tune it. And then, you know, it it all comes, you know, it can get a bit overwhelming for people, but I guess like it's you can get a lot of good sounds out of a lot of different drums. I guess it's probably a good thing to know.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. There's a a world of options. It's, you know, to me as a drummer, I feel like the snare is really one of those defining elements of a mix and you can hear it all over every record. Like there's, there's a lot of different sounds that you can get just not only based on the actual drum itself, but on the tuning. So there's uh, definitely a lot for people to explore when it comes to the world of recording drums and, and, uh, and, and finding the right source for it, you know? Um, yeah, that's very cool. Uh, and so you mentioned like transient designers. So you typically will add a little bit of that. Um, do you ever do any like clipping or saturation or any of that stuff with your, with your drums?
1: Yeah, definitely, uh, clipping and or saturation depending on, on what sort of the, uh, the initial transient is doing. If it's a really transient heavy drum and I'm trying to actually tame it back and fatten it out, then I will go pretty heavy with, uh, clipping and saturation. Um, I also like to EQ before the saturation. Usually, uh, what I'll be doing is finding the kind of the fundamental frequency of the snare if it's sitting around. Usually, a good starting point is somewhere around 200 hertz. And um, I boost that for a little bit of fatness. And that's always pre compression as well. So, saturation usually comes after compression for me. Um, but again, this isn't the be all end all. And, you know, I might change that tomorrow. Who knows? But, um, yeah, I'll do that. And another thing is that I find that I do a lot is I tend to uh, put a lot of high end into my snare mics, uh, and that's usually because I'm probably using some kind of dynamic mic on the way in, so it's it's definitely going to dull off some of those frequencies and the transient a bit. So, um, yeah, something like a, you know the top band of a Neve VQ, like ten seventy three or something like that, um, and I just a nice high shelf. I also find the, uh, what's it called? The Mag uh, EQ from, uh, I have it in there, I think the Plugin Alliance. The Plugin Alliance ones, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the EQ4, I think that is. The top end of that, set around 10K, uh, is a really nice shelf, I find, um, for all kinds of stuff, but especially snare drums, to kind of give it some life and it sounds, it's a very natural sounding top end. Um, it is going to bring in some of your you know nastier frequencies of your hi-hats, but... You know, it's all all a bit of a a gamble, really, and all a bit of a compromise at the end of the day.
0: For sure. But like like you said, you're kind of starting the signal chain with a gate usually, or maybe it's just mic positioning to to really isolate the snare and get rid of all of that hi-hat bleed or cymbal bleed, right?
1: Yeah, I I actually rarely gate my snare, which is probably something that seems a bit weird to most people. Um, If I do use a gate, it's most likely going to be um, the Oxford drum gate. I don't know if you've played around with that, but it's kind of a pretty ab- absurdly intelligent uh, drum gate. I use it all over my kick drum and my toms. It's pretty much been permanently on my kick drum and toms for since it came out. Um, snare, it's a little funny because basically, from what I understand, it, it was a product developed via machine learning. So it learns what a whole bunch of snare drums sound like. And then when you set it to listen out for snare drums it can kind of gate out everything else that isn't a snare drum and it usually works pretty well and if it doesn't you can tell it where it's gone wrong and it fixes it uh, but when you start getting into really fast technical stuff lots of ghost notes lots of like weird linear stuff where you know there's always going to be certain you know drums popping in and out around these snare hits it gets gets pretty almost overly complicated and you can also get to a stage with it, uh, almost too easily where you can just get really unnatural sounding snare drums. So, um, yeah, I have this thing where I, I ultimately end up not really gating my snare. Um, and I just, you know, desperately try to balance that out so that I don't just have what ultimately becomes with all the compression and all the, uh, the top end, uh, enhancement that I'm doing, it almost comes a, uh, becomes a symbol mic at some points but I definitely try and balance that out so I don't have tons of symbols in the center channel again
0: yeah as far as getting that balance is it just is it just a matter of moving the microphones around to get that isolation
1: yeah definitely definitely a, a solid focus on microphones in general microphone selection um, but also I guess uh, what I like to find is is within the stages of compression and, and transient designing that I'm doing on the snare track, uh, as long as that snare is kind of you know, um, hitting the way I want it to hit throughout the mix, um, I usually find myself that I actually need to almost always pull my snare drum down. It's always mixed so loud and I've, I need to pull it back. And once I actually find that sweet spot where it's hitting really nicely, um it, it's almost just naturally pulled down those that cymbal bleed enough that it doesn't really become a problem. If there's any like really sparse open sections where it's a bit more obnoxious, I might get into automation then uh, and do some things or maybe turn on a gate for a certain moment or something like that. But most of the time I find gates either kill my ghost notes and I need to do insane amounts of automation or they change the shape of the transient And I don't really like what they've done to it. It's either softening the attack or just doing something a bit strange to it that kind of is a bit of a vibe kill, I guess.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely one of the risks of using a gate is that it can be a little unpredictable sometimes as far as like how it's going to react to your drums and how it's going to change up the sound. So yeah, if you can avoid it, that's very cool. And especially when you have the ghost notes, because yeah, most of the time you're going to be probably gating above the threshold of the, those ghost notes and, uh, and you're going to lose all that, that detail. So, uh, definitely cool to hear about that. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about, this kind of ties into what we were talking about earlier, about how, you know, when you, you tend to work on a lot of like intricate music is that with a lot of that, like proggy technical stuff, it, there's, there's definitely a big need for everything to sound super tight and locked in as far as like, you know, guitars locking in with the drums or bass and that kind of stuff. So how, how integral is the editing process for you, and and like to what degree are you editing your tracks after you've recorded them?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a good one because I think it's something that I've wanted to uh, actually maybe make more of a a statement about it lately because it's becoming a, a pretty important thing in in my productions. Um, and at first, everyone thinks editing is just fixing up all these mistakes and you know correcting everything. I mean, I am very lucky to be working with some pretty ridiculously talented musicians but they still need editing and it's got nothing to do with how much they practice or anything like that it's got a lot more to do with just how my job works you know when i get to the mix um and it's stuff like i was talking about when it comes down to you know the length of the kick drum and and those tiny weird details um i've been working on a record lately And it's required a fair bit of editing. And it's not, again, not a problematic thing, but it's just in order to uh, really achieve the sound that this band is going for, I need to make sure that there's just certain characteristics in the bands that they're influenced by uh, are matched with their records. So, for example, if there's any really big drops where, you know, the entire band comes in on the downbeat, anything to do with like maybe. The tiniest shuffle of a guitarist's hand on the fretboard before that downbeat, or maybe a, you know the bass guitar's a tiny bit early, and I mean by the tiniest bit, um, I kind of have like this very analytical uh, moment where I pull I pull together a mix that's sounding pretty great, uh, especially if it's like the second track I'm mixing. Maybe I've already gone in and dialed in a mix on the first track, and I've loaded up all the settings again for track two, but the editing hasn't been done attract to um, and I start noticing these things because one uh, I definitely don't mix and I don't ever want to mix uh, in a way that I'm hiding mistakes or hiding flaws uh, I don't think that's really like a good sort of approach to take I you know in an, in an ideal world do you want everything to be up front and you want things to be? noticed. But when the, I guess the microscope of mixing gets turned on, it also brings out all those things, all those tiny little things, you know, sometimes it's the the drummer sitting back in his chair and his throne squeaks a little bit, or it's, you know, some weird resonance in the drum room that you just didn't hear because there wasn't, you know, super amounts of compression on the room mics at the time or something like that. So I am going through and editing stick clicks And, you know, all these kind of things and pulling them out of of mixes. Another thing I'm noticing is like unison lines, a lot of like guitars that have like a bass guitar thing following it or like a keyboard line that follows it as well. Those things have to be pretty nailed uh, and there can't really be a lot of room for looseness around that sort of stuff because it just, again, it, it really is like such a... Such a huge part of sounding, I guess, what people perceive as professional. Um, and yeah, sometimes it, it just doesn't take anything but a good bit of editing just to kind of nudge things in line or just clean up that tiny bit of silence before the last chorus or something like that. And sometimes I'm sitting there running over a section wondering why, you know, this one break doesn't sound very good with the vocals in it. And it's because there's like amp hum. Underneath it, just like a hummy high gain amp in the background, just man, and it's just oh, okay, I need to cut that out, and then all of a sudden the the vocal sounds so much clearer, and I can hear the delay on the vocals and all this stuff, and it's it's really such a funny, you know, particular thing that that most genres don't really care about, but it really is what what defines certain records and a certain sound that people are really going for.
0: Absolutely, yeah, definitely there's there's so much power in silence you know like it silence silence makes so much of a bigger impact when everything finally kicks in and so i love what you were saying there about just like cutting those spaces out where you get rid of that amp hum and that kind of stuff a lot of times that's just like really quiet stuff that you barely notice but when you take it out it all of a sudden can transform your mix a lot and really just make everything hit that much harder once everything does kick back in right
1: yeah and i think it's it's worth pointing out that there's definitely a. Uh... De- definitely a point where you can over-edit and, you know, over-perfect things. I think my goal is definitely to still make it sound like a guitarist it just wants to sound like a really good guitarist, you know, or, or like someone that's just, you know, in, in all the tricks and stuff that we already know with, like, maybe guitar rigs where you have, like, a noise gate and this thing to fix, you know, those issues and all these sort of, sort of things come up. You kind of want your editing just to sound like a really good uh, noise gate. Basically, just one that's perfect, that always just fixes things when it needs to be fixed. And uh, as for timing, again, it's worth just like listening to things a lot, you know, referencing stuff. If things, you know, if, if I was doing like a ridiculous tech death record that was just like, you know, tons of blast beats and tons of really shreddy guitars, then I might want to edit a lot harder because it's kind of acceptable in that genre. Like that's a thing that that is part of the sound and people are cool with that. And, you know, I guess if I was doing a Foo Fighters record, I wouldn't want to go in there with the same approach. (laughs) It's just not, (laughs) not what that band's really looking for.
0: Totally, yeah. No, I think that's a really good point to bring up too, is that like, you know, some people will hear this and think, okay, I have to gate everything manually and make it super tight. But it's like, yeah, if you're working on a Foo Fighters record or you're working on like a jazz record or something like that, those will sound so bad if you do that. Absolutely, absolutely. that's not what people get, are used you, to.
1: You'll lose the gig and you'll ruin the band if you're trying to do that sort of stuff. So,
0: yeah, there's there's that point of diminishing returns sometimes, and and also just like the point of um, just doing the wrong thing for the style of music you're working on, right?
1: <laughs> totally, totally. And I think it's a it's a funny thing that I noticed uh, with some of my editing approaches with with Pliny. Um, I guess uh, on the last record, Impulse Voices uh, was probably. I guess it's probably my 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 one record with him that I've done where I really think it's like nailed a particular sound in my head that I've wanted to get for him for a long time and we just never really had the time or the uh, the budget and all that sort of stuff to kind of put it all together, you know. And and you know, it's a a part of a gradual process. You know, his career was blowing up and, and we we're kinda of heading towards a certain direction and we've been working really hard and stuff like that, and obviously he got to a point where he just understood, uh, you know, what he needed to do to take things to the next level. He wrote a, a ton of ridiculously good songs, so I was really stoked to go into the record just with that. Um, let alone him saying like it was the first time we actually booked a drum room. He'd never actually wanted to to do that, or you know, or we had the time to do it, or something like we'd done stuff in, you know, uh, cheaply acoustically treated rehearsal rooms and stuff like that and all this this sort of places. But the first time was that. And uh, yeah, once we're going through and really knocking things out and getting sort of a good shape of of what the record was sounding like, I realized that I basically had a very weird hybrid approach to editing for his sort of music. Um, I basically want the drums and the the bass to be, in timing-wise, almost like MIDI. Like, I want it to, to just be perfectly in time. So I'm happy to edit the drums in time perfectly. And uh, as long as it still retains things, there's definitely some, like, you know, a handful of moments here and there where I didn't touch, you know, the edits on the drums just because I wanted them to be out or do some weird, maybe it's like a weird sort of jazzy, fusiony thing. Um, and same with the bass. Like, I would definitely track things as tightly as I could and, and as precisely as I could. And if anything was out, I'd, wasn't keeping myself up at night worrying about it, I would just go in and edit it and it would sound better. Uh, The rhythm guitars and every other sort of guitar layer and synth layer on top of that was relatively tight and fairly uh, edited quite, uh, you know, or at least I was just concerned about it being quite in time if it wasn't already. I'm not saying I edited everything, but if it needed it, it would get it. And then for Pliny's actual leads and anything that took like the forefront, I didn't want to touch anything um i kind of wanted to be like a vocalist where there's definitely like a push and pull rhythmically and there's definitely like small moments where maybe you know something might ring for a little longer than normal or it kind of has like this fluid approach to its timing um and i think that's kind of what makes it kind of adds a bit more of an organic vibe back into it. Because if with that pulled out, it sounds cool, but it sounds like a very different band. It sounds very tight and very, like, produced. And I know that Pliny doesn't want, like, the most hyper-focused, hyper-produced records. He wants, like, he's he loves a lot of rock records and a lot of, like, very organic-sounding stuff and a lot of, like, band-in-the-room-sounding stuff. So... Yeah, I found that with my editing, I was kind of doing that kind of hybrid approach, and and it worked out kind of cool for me. I think
0: that's very cool. I love that, and I think that that's there's something to be said there about when you have everything else kind of super tight and all your rhythm all your rhythm tracks are like super edited, then to have that slightly looser kind of lead vocal lead guitar in front, it, it kind of catches your attention because it isn't so perfect with everything else. It, it does have that like kind of attention grabbing element of it, that it isn't quite hundred percent locked in with everything else. And I, and I like the way you put it of just, you know, making it, treating it almost like it is a vocal and having that looseness to it. Um, because it definitely does give it its own unique character and not just kind of sound like everything else where it's like super blended in. Right.
1: Yeah. And, and I think when things aren't like, you know, perfectly edited, I don't think people realize how much, uh, Space that can take up or like can get in the way in a in a negative way towards the mix, you know, which is is funny to think because we're not always worrying about what's best for the mix. We do want it to sound musical. So, in the case of uh, you know going back to Pliny's leads, like yeah, they might actually be what you would consider technically out of time in certain moments. But on top of that, you've also got those out of time notes covered in delay which are now also out of time and the reverbs also adding onto that so you really do start creating quite a i don't know it it can get quite chaotic if it's not reeled in so which is which is definitely the reason that i try and tighten up the rhythm section and the backing elements to be rock solid and i can pick and choose where things can get chaotic you know as opposed to just having no idea and it just all getting out of hand very quickly
0: yeah yeah Well, you had mentioned the idea of tracking and how you like to track everything sounding like super tight. Um, And when you're working on intricate guitar parts and lead parts and that kind of stuff, you know, how what are some of your tips for capturing guitar lines clearly and getting those super tight performances? Yeah, um, I guess...
1: I'm very lucky to have practiced a lot of guitar as well as bass. So um, I think when I started playing bass at 13, my brother got a guitar at 14 and he didn't really want to play it too much. And I just ended up stealing it off him and learning a lot. So I naturally have uh, a lot of, um, I guess, natural ability to pick out phrasing and, and problems that come up in guitar. But in general, um, I do notice a few things and it's funny, like I, I spent probably a good five to seven years just tracking myself and friends and stuff like that who are all pretty much guitarists um, and just noticing all the the strange little quirks that come with with different guitarist approaches. Like one thing I have with a friend of mine who's a phenomenal guitarist but i we used to notice a lot when we were doing uh recordings is he would angle his pick in a way and it might have been the type of pick he was using at the time that it would make almost like a like a tapped note sound on the string like a very high pitched squeak it wasn't quite a harmonic but it would just squeak and if he did like a you know a shotgun run of notes where you'd just hear this you know constant, you would have this squeak coming off every single note that he was playing It was weird. Like I would notice stuff like that um, and we would have to either revise how he's holding the pick, change the pick, or unfortunately, if it was something that was already recorded a long time ago, I would try and have to go through and EQ that one section a bit differently, which is is never fun. Um, Other things I noticed is like uh, guitar resonances and setups and stuff like that, you know, strings ringing out or like certain parts. If you've got like a Floyd Rose and the springs in the back are ringing out because you're you're playing quite aggressively. Um, sometimes that can come through on the signal and stuff like that. So, aside from those technical things, um, I would say that by far the most overlooked thing in guitar tracking is uh, awareness of of tuning. And I guess the understanding that guitars are never perfectly in tune, even if you've got a you know five thousand dollar PRS and you get it set up by some professional who's really good. It's going to be really, really, really well, uh, like hold tune really well, but even then you can still find one chord or one particular part of the fretboard that's just going to be a bit funny if you play it a certain way. And uh, it's not so much like worth stressing out about as opposed to just being aware of it and knowing that maybe for that one section you either tune the guitar to fit that that chord Or is it a technique thing? Because a lot of, like, that's a thing that I notice with my playing all the time is if I come home from six weeks of playing bass for three metal bands and then I try and play guitar, I am monkey gripping the neck so hard that I'm bending everything out of tune because I've just been playing five string bass for, you know, six weeks. So sometimes it's just a guitarist squeezing too hard. Sometimes it's like a really energetic, you know, heavy section and they pick hard, but they need to realize that the fretting hand cannot be, you know, uh, having that same ferocity. It needs to be still delicate and just enough pressure to get the fret fretted without being bent out of tune. Um, those are pretty much the main things. And I, I, I am permanently, uh, getting people to send me a, re-recording of this one part here and there throughout their record. I'm like, oh, this this guitar chord's out of tune. Can you fix this? Or sometimes if it's like, depending on the part, I'll ask if I can just plug in a guitar and record it because it'll be quicker and I know what it needs to sound like. And some people just can't hear that. No, I'm not like, you know, shaming them because they're most of the time, they're phenomenal guitarists too. They've done a whole lot of work in very different fields than what I'm doing. And it's if, any, if it's anyone's job to hear this stuff, it's mine. So that's what I'm here for. But I guess it, all else fails, you can always get an Evertune. I have an Evertune in one of my guitars here. And for those that don't know what it is, it's basically a guitar bridge that just keeps itself perfectly in tune. Um, it can still have its own little sort of faults here and there, but overall, it's it's pretty flawless, Um and I would definitely recommend that if you've, it's a weird thing to experience aside from just all the, the, you know, physical things that it defies for most guitars. Uh, it's a weird thing to experience guitars that just sound really like incredibly in tune. It's, it's sometimes like I, I will realize how good my gear is just because I'm playing a really well in tune guitar. And I'm like, oh man, this amp's sounding great today. Or what have I got it set to? Or what are the pedals that are running in front of it? It's none of that. It's literally just the guitar's properly in tune, and it f- it just sounds phenomenal because of it. It's so funny.
0: Yeah, absolutely. They're they're definitely. It's definitely really cool technology that uh, I would love to see like more widely adopted. You know, like to to see it in a lot more music stores and stuff like that. Because yeah, for for being in the studio, it is definitely like a critical tool that, that just can make your life so much easier and probably save you hours and hours of just tuning time, you know? So.
1: For sure. There's definitely some, I mean, you know, purists and stuff like that. And, and I can definitely tell myself that, uh, just from owning it, it definitely has a sound and a feel to it. It's sort of, because it all technically is just like a very complicated tension system. Um, which relies on springs and stuff like that. So you do, the the string does feel a certain way, um, almost like if you had like a Floyd Rose or something, there's a certain tension and give behind it when you pick really hard. Um, but that said, and, and tonally, it's got a thing too, as opposed to something like a really solid, I guess, like a hip shot bridge or something fixed. Um, it does sound a little smoother on like the transient and a bit sort of softer in general, but I guess the trade-off is just ridiculous, especially if you're not doing like really particular, you know, uh, hyper-focused metal sort of stuff. You know, if I was doing any kind of rock or, or similar sort of stuff, it would be my go-to for sure.
0: Gotcha. For sure. And then lastly, when it comes to tracking, are you, are you tracking in small chunks to, to make sure that you're getting all those intricate lines down perfectly?
1: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, the, the main two things that I'm doing is is that checking the chords and uh, and pretty much just going through and if anything else needs patching up, going in and patching in just one chord at a time or something if it needs to be. And then, yeah, anything that's like obnoxiously technical or anything overwhelmingly uh, that needs to be synced up with maybe other parts or other unison lines. I'm quite particular about that. And I'm I'm not afraid to hopefully get the client to, to go through and just patch it together. Um, you know, if we're sitting together and working stuff out, most of the guys I've ever worked with are totally cool with dropping that in. Um, because I think it's also a thing of just knowing if you're actually capable. If I'm in the studio and I'm working with a musician that I know cannot for the life of them go out on the road and play that part like that, I will definitely try and direct them to a different alternative. Um, but at the same time, that's not really my, my place to, you know, uh, Sort of coach them on, but it you know there is definitely a stage where it's like we're gonna be doing this all day if we keep trying uh I'm not a person to slow things down and speed them up later or anything like that either, so if you can't play it uh even in small chunks, it's probably worth revising and there's no shame in that it's not you know it's not the Olympics it's just more about like finding an alternative line that sounds cool or a different idea. Um, But yeah, chunks, you know, breaking things up and comping ideas are totally cool with me. I mean, vocalists have been doing it since forever and I would say arguably some of the best vocal takes in, in the world have been probably comped that we're completely unaware of.
0: Of course. Yeah. No, I love that. That's a, that's a really good comparison. So yeah, man, uh, dude, I, I don't want to keep you up because I know it's like 2.30 in the morning, your time. So I, dude, I appreciate you uh, spending the time here. And uh, the way you've broken down your process is just incredible. And I, I could tell that you've given a lot of thought about how things fit in the big picture of everything. So thank you for taking the time to to do this. I really appreciate it. No, thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate it. So that was my interview with Simon Grove, and I really enjoyed that episode. I thought he gave us a very extensive breakdown of his processes and understanding why he does everything the way he does. And it was really cool to hear his breakdown of his bass signal chain, but also how he tackles drums and guitars to just make sure that everything sounds really tight. And I thought it was a really good point that he brought up when it came to the topic of editing and how even if you have great musicians – Editing is such an important part of the process, and this is something that I think a lot of people overlook. They think, well, you don't need editing if you have great musicians. But the truth is that editing can definitely add a lot of impact and power to your mixes, and sometimes that's just a byproduct of removing silence or background noise, that kind of thing. So editing, you know despite having great, great performers and great performances, it's not something that you should gloss over. And this is something I see people do all the time. They just kind of skip over it, wanting to jump into the mixing stage to make things sound great there. But when you take the time to actually track things properly and then edit things properly, Mixing becomes so easy because you've already created so much space and clarity in your tracks that mixing isn't as much of a challenge because there's less to clean up. And, you know, the space between notes is, is such a important thing. And that's something you can only really get when you're properly editing your tracks. So um, I'm glad that he brought up that topic. I think it's really important. And definitely make sure to implement that into your own process if you're not already doing that. Now, if you need help with learning how to properly record, edit, and mix your tracks, that's something that I focus on inside of my Master Your Mix Academy membership. Now, inside of that membership, every month we have monthly master classes that focus on the recording, editing, and mixing stages. We have mix reviews, group coaching calls, and the great thing about the Academy is that it's designed to help you based on where you are currently at with your skill level. There's other membership sites out there where you just simply watch somebody mix something and kind of poorly explain why they do things and half the time you don't even see some of the signal chains that they've got. That's not what this membership is about because simply just watching somebody mix doesn't identify the areas in your own process that you need help with. So that's why inside of this membership, all of our members go through a onboarding assessment that helps you identify the gaps in your process and the areas that you need to focus on so that you can see the fastest improvement. And from there, we dive deeper into the recording, editing, and mixing stages because it all has to come together. But by focusing on your specific needs, it makes it easy to not feel overwhelmed by all the content. And again, it really makes it a very fast learning curve for you because you're being directed to the content that is most relevant to where you are at now in your current production skills. So if you're interested in learning more about the Master Your Mix Academy, visit MasterYourMixAcademy.com. And this membership is something that I only open up a couple times a year for registration. So at the time of me making this recording, it is currently closed, but it will be opening shortly. So definitely make sure to visit that website and join the waitlist so that you're notified once it becomes open. Because again, this is a really handy tool that is going to help you out drastically with your mixes and I know it's going to give you a lot more confidence in your process and knowing what step to take, what order to follow, and just identifying the elements that make up a pro mix. So once again, visit MasterYourmixAcademy.com to learn more about that and to get on the wait list. So with that said, we've reached the end of the episode. And guys, thank you so much for sticking around to the very end. I really appreciate it. And I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix Podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.